And most importantly, what about Iraq's 44-year-old leader, President Saddam Hussein? There is much to learn about him and his plans for his Middle East Arab nation of 13 million people. Saddam Hussein has gone to elaborate lengths, spent enormous sums, taken great risks to build and keep weapons of mass destruction. Saddam Hussein is determined to get his hands on a nuclear bomb. Nuclear weapon. Nuclear weapon. Nuclear weapon. Active chemical munitions bunkers, mobile production facilities. We know he's got chemical weapons. He's got them. He's got them. He's got them. Hey guys, and welcome back to A Conversation Before the World Ends. I'm your host, Kareem. And I'm Eamon. And welcome back. So... Where we left off last time was um, we just finished Iraq's uh, 1963 Bathurst Coup, mm-hmm. if you remember. I think you should have it done in like previously on Conversation <laughs> Before the World Ends. <laughs> we got to get him out of here. Yeah. <laughs> Saddam Hussein. Saddam Hussein, you have 24 hours. And then hours. you have your voice. Like, and it was, Iraq was a, a hub of history. It was the monarchy. Yeah. Then it was the custom. <laughs> Alien involvement. <laughs> Yeah, we'll try to fit that monologue in it. So where did we leave off? Well, to quote James Critchfield, he said, we had all the T's crossed on what was happening. On today's episode, aim, we're going to be tackling Saddam Hussein and the Iraq-Iran war. I wanted to also cover the first Gulf War, but the more I was reading on that and the Iraq-Iran war, it kind of got more convoluted. So it would be an injustice to lump two wars of this magnitude together. So you're just going to be like, and then the Gulf War happened? Uh, yeah, and then we're going to jump through the first Gulf War, I don't uh, think it was that important. You could do a spin-off show <laughs> on the first, based on the Gulf War. Yeah, how, yeah. I, met, how I met Saddam. Yeah. <laughs> Starring Bush Sr. <laughs> exactly, that could be a whole thing, yeah. Realistically, and this I is going to be... you're going to tie it all on how you were born out of the Gulf War. Out of, yes, yeah. yes, yes. The love child <laughs> of the Gulf War. Yeah. <laughs> no, so realistically, there's going to be four parts. The next episode will be the first Gulf War and the United States sanctions on Iraq after... Post, like post. So now we're just talking about Saddam. Yeah, so today we'll be talking about Saddam and his first war as president, the Iran-Iraq war, which is considered one of the deadliest wars of the last oh, one. Oh, really? Yeah. You wouldn't think that. Like, no one talks about this. Exactly. Wars. Western media tends to over forego that and they tend to focus on the Gulf War. But uh, the Gulf Iran- War is a lot more mainstream. Yeah, because America was involved, right? Mm-hmm. And because uh, Hulk Hogan faced uh, Sergeant Slaughter. Sergeant Slaughter was an Iraqi sympathizer. Wasn't it Adnan? Yeah, and Colonel Adnan, yeah. Adnan, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But in WrestleMania 7, I'm going to prove one thing, man that my God and my country and my Hulkamaniacs are going to live forever, brother. Anyways, so today we'll be focusing on Saddam. Where we left off was 
uh, they made a coup and they killed Qasim and they aired it on TV, if you remember, right? Is it true that Saddam Hussein stands for so damn insane? insane? Where is that from? Sa- Saddam Hussein makes me so... Oh, that, uh, that's my bush. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> or was it... No, was it... Was it from that movie, that TV show? Does anyone remember That's My Bush? (laughs) (laughs) American sitcom about George Bush becoming a TV dad? Pretty much, yeah. And he had like his wacky neighbor. Yeah, who's his wacky neighbor? Saddam Hussein was his wacky neighbor? No, no, no. Some white dude. I think the joke was like he has a wacky neighbor who just barges into it. Yeah, but who was the wacky neighbor? It was was a character as well. I don't know. Dick, Dick Cheney was the villain guy. And there was Carl Rove. Yeah, <laughs> dude, that show was ahead of its time, man. <laughs> Brilliant. And I remember when uh, Bush got left the office because he was so upset. They made Dick Cheney take over for a while, and then the theme song was "That's My Dick." Yeah, yeah, that's my Bush <laughs> sitcom, two thousand one. Wow, they come out two thousand one. Yeah, like they didn't give him a chance to breathe. Oh, you know who's the creator? Who? Matt Stone, Trey Parker. Interesting. Really? You know what? Maybe the show is underrated because it could be a satire on sitcoms Absolutely. and it went over everyone's head. I think so. And this was before people were that self-aware. I don't know. Yeah, they were so sure that Gore would win the election. Tentatively titled the show, Everybody Loves Al. However, due to the controversy regarding the election, the series was pushed back. <laughs> it said the show was then plotted around Bush. <laughs> that's hilarious. This That's My Bush is a satire of hero worship itself, the anti-West Wing, and the first true post-Clinton comedy. Interesting. Yeah. That's a whole thing, man. That's a whole different thing. You know what? Let's put a pin on that and let's rewatch it. This politically astute criticism is so embedded in in so much hysterical moment that series never seems weighty. Anyways, so where we left off was, like I said, Qasim had just been murdered and executed and then it was published on TV and the Ba'ath Party took control, right? Yep. So now we'll be starting from 1963. So pretty much the Ba'ath Party was in control from 1963, and this would be the last time an, uh, an Iraqi would lose grip of their country without a full-blown invasion. This was the last time a proper coup would happen without America directly getting involved. Uh, Iraq was always suspected. Iraq is always suspected that the coup of 1963 was engineered by the CIA in much the same way that had restored the Shah in power in 1953 in Iran. The only difference was that the Iraq coup was a lot more bloodier which ended uh, with their president, uh, General Abdel Karim Qasim, being tied to a chair and shot dead. Now, the CIA didn't really end there. They also played a role in preparing a shit list for those who should be eliminated after the coup to solidify the Ba'athist regime. The result was, of course, a massacre of extraordinary ferocity. They mostly gave out names of communist sympathizers. Pregnant women and old men were killed. Some were tortured to death in front of their children. It was the height of the Cold War, of course. So the CIA had tried and failed to orchestrate an overthrow to Fidel Castro in Cuba. Their main focus was, we do not want another Castro. And they probably didn't want a uh, Fidel Castro that was in the Middle East. Yeah, yeah, especially in the Middle East. And also at that time, uh, America was increasing its involvement in Vietnam. Kind of led like a purge of communists all over the world. So the foreign base for the Iraqi... It it almost seems like everyone has forgotten that... Uh, it's always more mainstream that the proxy wars were Vietnam, Cambodia, and uh, the Latin American countries. Mm-hmm. But no one realizes that there was major proxy wars in the Middle East just as much. And the proxy wars in the Middle East are still not done. Like, these other countries, now they have puppet governments and potential coups. But it's no longer yeah, proxy wars. It's never. And it, but the Middle East and proxy wars seems like it's never left the 60s. No, 
it just I think it's a lot more covert now. It's a lot more hidden what the proxy war is. But no, but there's always yeah, but been Syria a Syria is like known as a proxy yeah, war. Syria's Iraq like, was known. Libya was known. So the foreign base for the Iraqi coup was in Kuwait. Something Saddam Hussein has may have remembered when he invaded the Emirate in 1990. King Hussein of Jordan, who was also close, who also had close relations to the CIA, said during the planning of the phase of the coup, many meetings were he- held between the Ba'ath Party and the American intelligence. The most critical ones took place in Kuwait. King Hussein of Jordan would tell the Egyptian writer Mohammed Haikal that on the day of the coup, a secret radio broadcast was made from Kuwait that relayed uh, the name and addresses of all the communists that, that were in Iraq uh, to those that were carried out the coup. So let's begin with an origin story, right? So let's talk about the tyrant that would come to rule Iraq. Now, Saddam Hussein, America's public enemy number one, America's demon, the world's devil, the ruthless tyrant, the strong man to define all strongmen in the Middle East, uh, or from the Arab perspective, the strongman who defied the imperialism of America. And kept the Middle East safe. Yeah. It's interesting who you ask. Yeah. To the Western world, he was Hitler reincarnated, right? Yeah. He was born in 1937 in the outskirts of a town called Tikrit in North Iraq. Uh, we don't know much about his father, but at some point in his early life, he just kind of disappeared. Uh, people assumed that he probably died from cancer. His older brother would soon pass away from cancer as well, leaving his mother uh, too depressed to look after her young child. So Saddam was sent to live with his uncle, Khairallah, a former political prisoner and a nationalist. Saddam would be reunited with his mother at the age of three, who in the meantime got married to a distant relative named Hajj Ibrahim Hassan, who would routinely abuse Saddam psychologically and physically. At the age of 10, Saddam ran away from his home and he would return to Baghdad to live with his uncle. Under his uncle's guidance, Saddam attended a nationalistic high school and would later go study law before dropping out in 1957 at the age of 20 to join the Pan-Arab Ba'athist movement uh, while becoming a teacher on the side to support himself. Despite being a small nationalist party and the furthest one from being the most popular one in Iraq, he would join uh, the party because of his uncles and the connection to a person named Muhammad Hassan al-Bakr. More on him later. Saddam quickly impressed the party officials with his unwavering dedication, being used as a, th- as a street thug who was willing to take part in violent acts when needed for the cause, as shown in the last episode when we talked about the assassination attempt on Qasim. When they all shot themselves? Yeah, <laughs> he was the last minute recruit. Of course, like we said, the mission failed and Saddam would escape to Syria by swimming across the Tigris River. The infamous swim. Yeah, and then move from Syria to Cairo where he would complete his high school education and start studying law again. Just to clarify, it was a big uh, like folklore of how he swam across the, the river. The Tigris River, yeah. yeah. It was like, look how strong he is and all that. Uh, Saddam would return back to Iraq shortly after the Ba'ath Party took over the government in February 1963 in what we call now, or what they call the Ramadan Revolution. So let's talk about the Ba'ath Party. So like we said, the Ba'ath Party took over in 1963, right? And from the first What does day- Ba'ath mean? Ba'ath? Bath? I don't know. I didn't really look it up. Bath? I don't know. Renaissance. Oh, yeah, it means Renaissance. Renaissance. Renaissance party. I knew you had it in there. Yeah, uh, it was, it's so deep, it's in my yeah. subconscious. <laughs> I can just see it in your eyes, son. You're like, come you on. Say it. Yeah. Say it. <laughs> just close your eyes. And yeah, say it. so Bath means Renaissance. The Bathist installed a person named Abdul Salim Arif. If you remember, he was the dude that Kasim had, uh, Kasim, Kasim had arrested. Uh, for attempting to assassinate him twice. He was the, the vice guy president. Was his guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
uh, as president of the new republic and Abdul ha- uh, Ahmed Hassan al-Bakr as his prime minister. And uh, from day one, they knew nothing but brutality. At 8 p.m. of the day of the coup, Baghdad Radio broadcast a decree calling, the ma- calling for the massacre of all communists after accusing them of trying to save the enemy of God, Qasim. Later, uh, years later, it would be found out that CIA, like I said, had supplied the names to the Ba'athist party of, uh, and the addresses of all the communist leaders. On the first three days, 5,000 communists would be killed. Wow, they're efficient, huh? Yeah. Uh, they, went on, they, they carried out house-to-house massacres, huh? It's they would crazy. go, knock, open door, uh, on-the-spot execution. Damn. The new leaders of Iraq didn't really have a set agreed policies. And the problem with Ba'ath is, the Ba'athist party is that it's kind of a flip-flop of politics. It's part nationalism, part socialism, part capitalism, part, you know what I mean? Uh, was there only, fascism. Was there only belief pan-Arab? Arab, it's, they... it, it, its roots were nationalism, right? Mm. But what were its policies? You, you know what I mean? It depends on who you're asked. Because the problem is the Ba'ath were split. You had people who wanted to join Abdel Nasser and create a pan-Arab state. Mm-hmm. You had people who thought Iraq should come first. And should be an Iraqi party. Yeah. You had also socialist sympathizers or left-wing sympathizers. Mm-hmm. Uh, you had religious people who wanted to make an Islamic Iraqi state. And then you had the Shia Sunnah stuff. Yeah. So there was a lot of infighting, especially between the pro and the, an- the anti-Abdel Nasser front. Uh, and this was the climate that Saddam Hussein returned to Iraq in. And was he was appointed as the head of a Jihaz al-Khas, or the intelligence organization of the Ba'ath Party. Which would be, and was it because of his tenacity? I think, first of all, because of his family connection. His, okay, uh, his yeah, distant... Political prisoner and yeah, uncle, yeah? Yeah, he kind of helped him together. And plus, because as a reward for the assassination plot and okay. that fact that he had to run away and stuff like that. Um, so to turn to Saddam's instrument of terror, right? It was reported that the CIA, again, had supplied the organization with more names of Iraqi communists and sympathizers to be picked up and executed in the palace of the end. That's the name of the palace. They're literally like a, a loaded gun. Yeah, but the good times wouldn't last and the Ba'ath Party would be overthrown in November of that year, making their title run last only 10 months. No more butchie. No more of this. Who overthrew them? So what happened? The Iraq Ba'ath uh, Party Secretary General, Ali Saleh al-Sadi, or Sadi, who was the most powerful leader of the new government, supported a union with Syria, while other members of the party wanted to support a policy called Iraq First. So this led to a factionalism within the group. And so on Tuesday, November 12th, Asadi, the secretary general of the Ba'ath Party, and 18 of his colleagues were arrested and flown to Madrid with passports set to expire the next day. So once they land, the passports are expired. Interesting. Uh, the next day, the Radio Baghdad announced that the Ba'ath Party would be led by a 15-member council group headed by Al-Bakr. So Al-Bakr would become the new... Yeah. Uh, This led to a mass demonstration in Baghdad and by the afternoon, Al-Bakr had quelled the demonstration. The next evening, uh, in Madrid, Ali al-Sayed announced that that eight of the new Ba'athist leaders had been ousted and yet he was en route to Baghdad through Syria with the Syrian Ba'athists. The ceremonial president, of course, Abdul Salam Arif, was like, you know what, fuck that shit. On November 18th, with his brother... Abdurrahman Arif and the Iraqi army, they went and they suppressed the Ba'athist National Guard. So you had Stop three factions from, going ahead. Stopping them from coming exactly. back, yeah. And they bombed the Ba'athist headquarters. They removed Al-Bakr and Said remained in exile. And the first Ba'athist government was overthrown by a new pro-Nasserist government. 
they would establish that the only legal party would be a Nasser party called the Arab Socialist Union of Iraq. And of course, none of this sat well with the West, right? But more on that later. Uh, the new Iraqi government announced that the nationalization of all banks, insurance companies, and 32 privately owned trading and manufacturing companies would be under the government's hand. Okay, and then the government also, they didn't even wait and they started a new offensive against the Kurds by March 1965, hoping that it will crush the Kurdish movement by the end of the summer. Of course, it's like almost like, let's just make sure the Kurds don't take over. Yeah, like you see that, by the way, every now and then they do something. Somehow, yeah. like, like, oh, let's bomb the Kurds as well. <laughs> you know this what I mean? Get, yeah, this is quite Of course, this did not end by the summer. I don't think anyone whose plans <laughs> a war to be end in three months ever ends in three months. Maybe you shouldn't just plan the end of wars. They should have learned from World War I when they said it will be over by Christmas. Exactly, yeah. Uh, of course, this didn't happen. And by 1966, the cost of the campaign against the Kurds would cost Iraqi $270 million. This is 1966, $270 million. Of course, the, the Kurds were being supported by the Iranians during that time, by the Shah. On April 13th, 1966, President Abdeslam Arif died in a mysterious helicopter crash. He would be succeeded by his brother, who for the most part tried to develop a closer relationship with the United States, which was followed by the sacking of six of Abdel Nasser sympathizers in the cabinet. By 1967, the government had, or had suffered two serious blows. There was a dispute in 1966 December between Syria and the Iraqi Petroleum Company over the fees charged for the oil pumps through what we call the Trans-Syria Pipeline that takes the oil from Iraq through Syria to the Mediterranean. And the second blow, of course, was the Six-Day War in June between Israel and the Pan-Arab states. Classic war. Uh, since Iraq bowed out from aiding Egypt and Syria, this kind of led to an animosity between Egypt and Iraq. Yeah. So this takes us to the July 17th, 1968. The Iraq Ba'ath Party, led by al-Bakr, came back and took over. Uh, and he would act as president. In uh, uh, how smooth was it? They just came in. This, is, this was surprisingly a bloodless coup. They just came in like, hey, we're taking Yeah, over. they took over. They seized power. Uh, they placed Arif on a plane. And they sent him to London. On June 30th, cementing the Ba'ath Party control over Iraq. Uh, and this would remain... And the Ba'ath Party would be in... Re- in control until March 2003. Al-Bakr was then named Prime Minister and Commander-in-Chief in the, of the Army with Saddam Hussein acting as his deputy and the deputy chairman of the Revolutionary Command Council. Uh, but everyone knew by then that Saddam Hussein was clearly the driving force of the party. So I guess now we need to talk about the man himself, Saddam Hussein. Saddam. So back to Saddam. Saddam focused on attaining stability in the nation of profound amount of tension. A lot had happened in those past 10, 15 years. Yeah, exactly. Saddam wanted to achieve stability through modernizing the Iraq economy, along with the creation of a strong security apparatus to prevent any future coups. And he started to implement a sort of modernization, right? At the center of all this, of course, was Iraq's oil. On June 1st, 1972, Saddam oversaw the seizure of the international oil interests, and a year later, by 1973, if you know, if you know, you know, the oil prices would rise dramatically. Yep. Uh, due to the, of course, the 1973 energy crisis, in which, um, which was caused by an embargo led by King Faisal and the, the OPEC, OPEC crew. Yeah, which skyrocketed revenues, which enabled Saddam to expand his economy even faster. Within a few so years. So, just to give people some background. Yeah, the, the uh, Arabs decided to uni- unite against the West in terms of the supply of oil, mm-hmm. which drove the prices of oil, which was 
one of the rare acts where the Middle East actually worked as a unit. Yeah, and this was as a result. All the nations in the Middle East. And that created that whole jacking off the prices, which we're kind of seeing now. Yeah. It's very similar to what we're seeing now. But the cause of this, of course, was that Egypt, the Yom Kippur Kippur War. Because Egypt was at war with Israel, and they're like, to Americans, if you get involved, this is what we can do. Yes, exactly. It was a way to make sure that the Americans don't get involved with Egypt and Israel's conflict. Yes. So within a few weeks, a few weeks, within a few years, Iraq was providing social services that that were unheard of in the Middle East. Uh, the government had established a national campa- campaign for the eradication of illiteracy, and uh, and they made a compuls- compulsory free education for all citizens of Iraq up until high school. And if you were older than 40 and you were illiterate, you were forced to go back to school to, g- to gain literacy. The government also supported families of soldiers. They granted free hospital- hospitalization for everyone, free health care, gave subsidies to farmers. Iraq created one of the most modernized public health systems in the Middle East, which earned Saddam an award from the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, or UNESCO. In 1974, he allowed women to join the workforce. In 1977, women were allowed to join the armed forces, and eventually the Air Force as well. Like many revolutionary ideas, it just scared the shit out of the establishment. Um, Pretty modern, huh? Very modern. The surge in revenues from oil brought with its diversification of economy, Iraq would implement an infrastructure campaign as well. So electricity was brought to nearly every single Iraqi city. By 1976, Saddam rose to a position of general of the Iraq, Iraqi armed forces and thus became the strong man of the party and the government. You know, if you control the armed forces, especially in an Arab country, you control it all. I feel like Saddam and people like Hitler, the reason why they've invested in the people, it's just like, don't forget, these are ego-driven people. Almost all political leaders, I feel, are ego-driven. Mm-hmm. And, and I feel like majority of them are ego-driven and they're just ego-driven people. So there's one thing, the economy for themselves first? Not for themselves. They just want to be like, look, we're Iraqis, we're better than everyone. Yeah. And I feel like all their intentions are just like, let me make my country look amazing. In front of everyone. In front of everyone. So it benefited the people. But then what happens with these leaders is like, now I need to impose... Stricter. My great, like the greatness of my people, and continue expanding and show them how great I am. Like, first of all, they're like, you know, it's almost like, uh, let's use this random analogy like, you eat healthy and you work out to improve your body. But then some people, are like, now that my body's improved, let me go beat everyone up to show how strong I am. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like you. that was Hitler and Saddam, and a lot of dictators, like even Gaddafi, like and Mussolini. Yeah, yeah, they're like, let's let's improve my nation and so Stalin to and, an and let me go show off how strong Americans themselves, like isolationism. Mm. Let's fix our country up, and now let's go be a superpower. Yeah, yeah, right. Let's flex now. Let's flex and show everyone why we're the best. But you can't do it unless you do improve your country. So whether or not that was his intentions, I do feel like it's very ego driven, but it's very pro nationalism. I think it's like, let me make my people the best people. Because I, I want them to be the best. So that when I go to other countries, I have to justify why I have they're to the best. Show, I have to show them. Like, and then the other country would be like, he did do a good job with that country. Because when you say, oh, Iraq's literacy rate was 97%. Yeah, other countries when he invades would be like, we want this. Or like, Look what he did for his people. Of, the, or like you could say, Iraq are mightier, bro. We have 97% literacy. Boom. I solved the dictatorship. Problem? Problem. Why, they be, why they're like that. Why they always... <laughs> mess up in the end join Amos masterclass on how to dissect the dictator pay 
10.99 a month <laughs> for that and i'll dissect everything yeah so by 1976 saddam rose to position as you said to the armed iraqi armed forces right mm-hmm. al-bakr also had become unable to execute his duties because he was getting older uh saddam Is he getting older or just getting, getting old? old he's just getting old <laughs> saddam became the de facto head of state uh eternally and externally and started slowly to consolidate his power And by 1977, he would take control of all aspects of Iraq's oil policies, which, of course, gave him ac- access to the main resources that funded the so economy state. and military. Yeah. In 1979, July 16th, Saddam acted to secure his grip on power. He staged a palace coup by forcing al-Bakr to resign for health purposes. But it was more in a threatening way than a concerned student, you know what I mean? Al-Bakr did resign. Because like, like the future is now old man. man yeah. <laughs> Al-Bakr did resign and transfer the presidency and the chairmanship to the RC- and of the RCC to the Anakot Cherish comrade, Saddam Hussein. So Saddam was what, 38 at the time? Yeah, Pretty he was young. young, yeah. Now it was up to Saddam to make sure that no one really objected his transfer. Now let me set you a scene. Okay. Um, Paint me a picture. Music. Uh, <laughs> so... Imagine this, a large smoke-filled room in Baghdad on July 22, 1979. About 100 or so of the Ba'athist party members sat listening to the newly installed president denouncing a conspiracy theory against him, or a conspiracy against him. Suddenly, a man is brought on stage before the whole conference, bearing marks of torture, and he has a vacant expression on his, on his face. His name is Muhyi um, Abbek, okay, one of Saddam's uh, senior Ba'athist leaders. Uh, he takes out a piece of paper and he proceeds to confess his role in, pl- in a plot to over- overthrow Saddam's new regime. And off that piece of paper, while Saddam is sitting there next to him smoking his cigar, he begins to read out the names of the alleged conspirators who are sitting in the conference hall. One wow. by one, 50 names were read out. Each man escorted after the name was read by a uniformed guard sent to the back. The remaining members, now visibly afraid, Start, chant, start rising and start chanting their allegiance to Saddam Hussein in hope that he would be spared the same fate. The survivors of the purge would be later handed a gun and would be ordered to execute their fellow colleagues. This marked the beginning of Saddam's 24 years as the president of Iraq. This seems like the end of a series, like the, the final episode <laughs> of the season, like something Homelander would do. By the way, he'll have like the boys, like he'll be like, all right, guys. By the way, this, is on, this was put on national TV. Wow. I could show you the clip after of Saddam just sitting there with his cigar while he's just while the guy is reading out the names. And it's the most bizarre scene because like people are getting up and they're saying like God is great. Saddam, we follow you. And like you know what I mean? And like and like you just see uniform. It sounds something out of uh, It's yeah. a gangster movie. Absolutely, yeah. Quick side note on Saddam, his favorite movie was The Godfather. Ah, makes sense. Mm. He had a passion for American films. I think The Godfather was one of his favorite and The Conversation. Decent music. <laughs> yeah. So dumb. Uh, weird that he'd take a movie that's conspiratorial, The Conversation. Yeah. It probably gave him ideas on where to plant bugs. Yes. Now Saddam is in charge, 1979. What's next for him, right? And I guess the next part we need to talk about is the Iraq-Iran war. Okay. So the historical background to the Iran-Iraq war is a territorial one before it is an ideological one, right? And this stretches back to centuries. Like we talked about the Ottoman Empire days when it was created as a buffer zone between the Ottomans and the Persians. And since the 1930s, there had been repeated border clashes between Iraqis and Iranis and 
Iranians. It's for the American uh, yeah, fans. The Iranians. The Iranians and the Iraqis. Yeah. <laughs> the Iraqis and the Iranis. Iranis. <laughs> you have in your notes written Iranis? No, no, no. I, I, that, that's ad lib. That was yeah, me okay. trying to improvise. <laughs> Stick to the script, bro. Stick to the script. Okay. So there was a lot of border clashes between the Persians and the Iraqis. Uh, at the heart of the long-standing border conflict, there was a place called Shat al-Arab, which is a waterway between Iraq and Iran uh, that leads to the Persian Gulf. Now, that kind of creates a natural divide between the both countries, but the control of the waterway to the Persian Gulf was very important. You know what I mean? Um, of course, Iraq always uh, claimed that, or they've insisted that the waterway belongs to them uh, and they, that they must have full sovereignty of the Shat al-Arab. Uh, of course, Iran, on the other hand, wanted an outlet to the sea as well. And they're like, we need, this is ours as well. I mean, it's named the Persian Gulf. <laughs> I think. Or, Who named it? Uh, the Persians. Of course. <laughs> it's, it's, it's my name. It's in the name. Yeah, uh, Persians. <laughs> in 1975, the Shah's regime in Iraq, in Iran, with the backing of the United States, won major concessions, including something called the Thalwake Principle after coming on brink to war with Iraq. So they kind of had something called the Algier Conf Agreement, in which they would, they would have a ceasefire and they would kind of establish the borderline. But on September 17, 1980, Saddam Hussein announced that the agreement, uh, with the Algiers Agreement, was, uh, was something he did not want, and he kind of ripped up the paper on TV. Uh, the 1975 agreement has imposed upon Iraq by imperialism, so of course he did not want anything to do with it. And he said that it favored Iran over Iraq. And this reignited the Iraq-Iranian dispute, border dispute. In any case, whatever Saddam thought and whatever he brought into what he was selling, it was all a smokescreen because Saddam really wanted to, his real intention was to annex a, ter a territory in Iraq that was, of course, sitting on something that's very important to him. Oil. Oil. So let's shift a bit to Iran and let's talk about Iran and their relationship with the United States just for the context before the war, right? Eisenhower was troubled by the animosity that the Middle East had shown to America, which was due in part to quote uh, Dole's, uh, Eisenhower's Secretary of State. And he says, the United States suffered from being linked with the British and French imperialism and coupled with America's blind support for Israel. Eisenhower would raise the issue at the National Security Council that he wanted to get some people in this downtrodden countries to like us instead of hating us. His answer would come in the form of Iran. Many Iranians thought Americans to be their friends. So like Iraq, Iran had spent 20, the 20th century being exploited for their oil. It was in 1901 that British experts were granted a concession to search for and develop possible oil fields. After seven years of costly and unrewarded effort, oil was struck at last and drilling commenced. The great oil company was formed, and as large quantities of crude oil began to gush from the barren soil, the construction of the first refinery was begun in Abadan. In 1911, the oil field was linked to the newly built refinery by the first pipeline. Uh, the British owned something called the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company, or AOC. Uh, a terrible uh, <laughs> abbreviation. AOC. Uh, but it would be the forerunner of BP, if you know BP, yep. uh, which only benefited, of course, the Anglo side of that name. So Britain would keep 84% of their revenues and in the process had developed a relationship with the Shah Reza uh, of Iran. Well, the fiction of fucking Shah of Iran's car. 
and all the rest of Iran ate shit. So in 1951, the Iranians turned to a person called Mohammad Mossadegh, who pledged to overthrow the company out of Iran and reclaim the reserves and free Iran from the subjugation of foreign power. And this was kind of inspired by the fact that America had set up Aramco. And the deal with Aramco is that America would take 50%, Saudi would take 50%. So it seemed fair. It seemed fair. And witnessing a sense of not being wanted, the British were like, you know what, we'll come up with our own deal. But of course, as good as a deal as a Western nation can come, it's, the Iranians were not interested. They're like, brother, it's not about the deal. You are the problem. Yeah. You know what I mean? You, you are need, the problem. Yeah, you need to leave. Spice that in. Who's that from? Oh, okay. Yeah, okay, I'll put that in. I thought to myself, well, you're the problem. Yeah. <laughs> Mossadegh, despite his flaws, some of his flaws, he was a very popular figure in Iran. The U.S. ambassador reported that he was backed, he was backed by 95 to 98% of the people in his country. With Iran producing 40% of the Middle Eastern oil at the time, so you could understand that the British cabinet who kind of wanted... Uh, to deal with him in the typical 20th century colonial exploiter sense. They started debating in their parliament uh, how to overthrow the current, should they overthrow the current government. And, yeah. they, and they drew up a pros and cons list. You know, Logic. It's, it's a 20th century take on colonialism, you know. Yeah. We need to, let's debate it first. Of course. <laughs> but stopped short when they came to notice that it would blow out their budget. Really? Oh, hold on. Yeah, they're like, you know, we can't. Uh, it's they not had the, a PL and everything. Yeah, yeah. They had, a dem- <laughs> they had a demand planner and it's like, yeah. I can't give you that budget. In 1951, Winston Churchill returned to power and increased the push for military intervention and wrote to Truman. Look, look at this dude, man. He wrote that mussy duck was an elderly lunatic bent on wrecking his country and handing it over to the communists. Like, he didn't even give him respect. He called him Mussy Duck. Winston Churchill's a joke. Yeah, but he got Gary Oldman an Oscar. I wonder if he portrayed him as a, like... Uh, but by then, Truman... Comment, guys, if... Yeah, if you know how... If it's worth watching. Did they glorify him or not? Yeah, like, I feel like Mel Streep kind of glorified Thatcher. I feel like Gary Oldman wouldn't, but I think he'll make him deeply flawed. <laughs> Truman was hesitant to go in, and he... Baby, did he scare you? That was Truman, okay? Truman was like, listen, I don't want to go to Coop because I don't want this to start the trend of us doing Coops. Little did they know. Truman seemed like he had good, he had like at times. He dropped a bomb, bro. He True. dropped the bomb. Yeah. In every American president. <laughs> like he tried to find the it's good in someone. Good about any American president, <laughs> any president at all. Except depending on who is listening, the president you liked, we support. We support. It's like Eisenhower. They don't make names like Eisenhower anymore. Ike Eisenhower. That's such an old school name. <laughs> yeah. You'll never get a president named like Eisenhower. Eisenhower. They're so boring now so where were we yeah so when eisenhower took over office the duels brother like i said john his secretary of state and alan the head of the cia you know i mean nepotism baby with kermit roosevelt nepotism baby uh all met to discuss eliminating mossadegh and started working on an operation called operation ajax and we'll save the operation ajax for a whole different episode but long story short the cia would use propaganda that mossadegh was a jew and a commie and that they would hire thugs on behalf, who would act on behalf of Mossadegh and they would go attack mullahs in mosques and attack mosques. On August 5, 1953, they would bring in a guy called General Fazallah Zahdi out of a CIA hiding place and he would announce his loyalty to the Shah and he would be the new prime minister. The Shah would return to Tehran once Mossadegh was arrested along with the thousands of his supporters uh, at a final meeting 
uh, another final meeting with Kermit Roosevelt. I'm just imagining like, Kermit the Frog. <laughs> yeah, he sense. Yeah, he's just dying. They're, the they're all Muppets. The Shah would say to Kermit, "I owe my throne to God, my people, my army, and to you." As a result, of course, of this beautiful coup, five American oil companies would receive 40% ownership of all the oil in Iran. Iran would take $68 million in emergency aid, and America would arm Iran to the teeth, making it the strongest military power in the Middle East. And with that, the CIA had officially toppled its first government. You always remember your first. Our first time. I was scared at first. It was awkward at the beginning. I cried. I was by myself. I was I was scared at first, but it started to feel natural pretty quickly. I did it for hours. I loved it. We did it in the bedroom. We did it in the living room. Now that I've started, I'll never stop. Right? It, was, uh, it wasn't even Latin America. Huh? No, it is Iran. Interesting. So during the 60s and 70s, with the U.S. still supplying Iran with a fuck ton of weapons and a twist of irony, it would, uh, it would also urge Iran to take up a nuclear program to save its abundant oil reserves. Huh. How times have changed. Uh, right? And it also supported every repressive action the Shah would take. And the chief critic of the Shah's regime was a man named Ayatollah Khomeini, uh, who would be exiled in 1964, to, first to Iraq, then to Paris. By 1970s, and amidst a dismal human rights record, Jimmy Carter would still arm Iran to the teeth, the beloved Jimmy Carter, and he would give prim, uh, he would give approval to the sale of six to eight light water nuclear reactors to show his support. And to show their support, the Carters would go and spend a New Year's Eve at a party in with the Shah in Tehran. In 1978, President Carter toasted the Shah's leadership at a New Year's celebration in Iran. Iran, because of the great leadership of the Shah, is an island of stability in one of the more troubled areas of the world. This is a great tribute to you, Your Majesty, and to your leadership and to the respect and the admiration and love which your people give to you. Wow. Yeah. Okay. In the following months, protests would break out, and fearing that that meant Iran would fall to the Soviets, the Pentagon had drawn up a plan to occupy the oil fields of Iran. Uh, by January 1979, so by the time like, Saddam was in power, or barely took over, the Shah had fled the country. Brzezinski, the national security advisor of the United a- uh, States, feared the communist takeover. And in what turned out to be a colossal failure of intelligence, the CIA and the State Department, they all downplayed the threat of Islamic fundamentalism in lieu of communism. Like communism is a bigger threat to Iran than Islamic Islamic fundamentalism. fundamentalism. I don't think they cared about Islamic fundamentalism. It's showing you how over, like like a failure of intelligence, you know what What I mean? What was it that they said, like, who cared, like... Islamist fundamentalists can be bought, communism can't, something like yeah, that. Yeah. Wasn't that their perception? Um, that Islamic funda- fundamentalism, yeah, like, Islam doesn't contradict capitalism. Yeah. Um, in the February of that year, so February of 1979, a 77-year-old Khomeini returned to Tehran. In the helicopter, right? Yeah. Was that and, the infamous helicopter, right? No, I think he came with an airplane. Okay. And when he was asked how he felt being back, he said, I feel nothing. Khomeini returned to Tehran and said to reestablish the Islamic Republic. In November, students burst into the American embassy and seized 52 American hostages who were held for 444 days. You can see in the in the accurate film Argo, Argo <laughs> starring Ben Affleck, uh, directed by Ben Affleck. 
Khomeini made a promise that this would be the beginning of an Islamic revolution all over the Middle East. Kuwait became a target for sustained terrorist attacks and subversive campaigns, yet the main thrust of the subversive effort, of course, was directed against Iraq. Uh, like we said, Iraq, the Shias in Iraq constituted around 60% of the total population. So of course they wanted to follow an Iran, uh, Iran suit. Exactly, and they didn't like the, the fact they were being ruled by a Sunni minority. Yeah. Right, who at least made up 20% of the country. The revolutionary regime in Tehran could and certainly did entertain hopes that the Shiite community uh, would emulate the Iranian example and rise against the Sunni oppressors. Secondly, given Iraq's position as the largest and most powerful state in the Gulf compared to Iran, it was viewed by the revolutionary regime of Iran as the main obstacle to Iran's quest to regional hegemony. Uh, in, 19, in June 1979, revolutionary, the revolutionary regime of Iran began to publicly urge the Iraqi population to rise up and overthrow the Ba'ath regime. To find their quest. Yeah, to find the, the quest. quest. Yeah. <laughs> Which had governed Iraq since, like we said, 1968, right? Of course, Tehran escalated the campaign by resuming its support for the Iraqi Kurds. Which was exactly what Americans wanted. Uh, they provided aid to underground Shia movements in Iraq, including initiating terrorist attacks against prominent Iraqi officials. Of course, this reached the peak on April 1st, 1980, with a failed attempt on the life of the Iraq deputy premier, Tariq Aziz. Uh, he was making a public speech in Baghdad then while an assassination attempt took place on him. Later, we, uh, two weeks later, Iraqi Minister of Information, Latif uh, Nasif Ajassim, narrowly escaped a similar attempt. In April alone, at least 20 Iraqi officials were killed in bomb attacks by Shia underground organizations. Saddam, who had considered the 1965 agreement to be lopsided against uh, Iraq, saw this as an opportune moment to assert ter- territorial claims. Uh, he was able to get the territorial uh, expansion Cassius Belli from oh, Siv. Yeah. Siv yeah. It made additional demands as well, including some of like, he wanted the Arab self-determinization of this place in Iraq, Iran called Khuzestan, uh, oil-producing border region in Iran that was inhabited by ethnically Arabs. So it was an Arab region in Iran that Saddam said that it should be uh, independent or eventually join Iraq. He also demanded that Iran relinquish control of the islands Abu Musa and the Great and Lesser Persia's Gulf Islands, which, result, which was controlled by the Arab Sheikhsdom of Sharjah and Ras Khamenei, respectively, under the British protection. Uh, they had been seized by Iran in 1971. On February 1979, Khomeini proclaimed himself as the supreme leader of the revolution and dismissed the former head of the, the former prime minister who fled to France. Though it favored the monarchy, the army wanted to save whatever it could be, still could be saved. They declared neutrality and they committed to serve anyone who's in, the, who's in power. Uh, the imperial guards were dissolved. Numerous colonels and uh, generals were fired. The problem with that, it kind of left the army depleted. When you fire most of your colonels and journal, generals, you don't have the, the expertise, right? Yeah, that's all newbies. But it was rumored that... Um, with a little incitement from the United States, Saddam was primed and ready to go into Iran, dangling the prospect that Washington could back it up politically. Saudi Arabia would claim that in 1985, Jimmy Carter had tried to persuade King Khalid to encourage Saddam to launch a crusade against Khomeini, and that Saudi Arabia would finance it through America. He wanted to destabilize the region. And in a meeting with the king in Riyadh in 1980, Saddam was told that he could count on America's support. In a televised address on... Yet America was helping Khomeini. In televised address in September 17th, no, don't forget, uh, America was in favor of the Shah who got ousted by oh, Khomeini. Yeah, yeah, you're right, yeah. So September 17th, 1980, 
President Saddam Hussein stood before the National Assembly of Iraq and condemned the neighboring state of Iran. Hussein accused Iran of continuing support of the Kurdish insurgents uh, that bested his regime, in which it was in violation of the shared 1975 Algiers Accord. The agreement also promised to settle the border dispute over who owned the Shat uh, Arab waterway and uh, to resolve the Kurdish insurgency in Iraq. Saddam Hussein made no effort to conceal, conceal his distrust to Iran and he said, and I quote, the rulers of Iran had violated his disagreement as of the beginning of their reign by blatantly and deliberately intervening in Iraq's domestic affairs by backing and financing as did the Shah before them. He declared, I announce before you that we consider that the 6th March 1975 agreement abrogated from our side. Uh, he technically had no such authority to single-handedly revoke the international agreement, but to Saddam Hussein, he didn't care. You know, I mean, he took, he took his official copy of the paper. As the world watched on TV, he raised it in the air and tore it into pieces. Five days later, Saddam Hussein ordered... The Algiers Accord, whatever the... Yeah. Uh, Saddam Hussein ordered the Iraqi forces to overtake Al Shat al-Arab waterway, and soon they would invade Iran. So the severity of the conflict cannot be understated. The Iraq-Iran war lasted for eight long years, and it was estimated that around 500,000 Iraqis and Iranians died. That's a lot of numbers. Yeah. That's a lot of numbers. Yeah, battles transpired in the brutal fashion of World War One. Soldiers fired from trenches. There were barbed wires, human wave attacks, clashing with bayonets, massive casualties. Where was most of the battle taking place? In? That's the thing. It was taken in trench lands outside of cities. Okay. Uh, it was considered the last conventional war. Interesting. Mm. Um, Before the weapons boom and yeah, yeah. the technological uh, boom, yeah. And it was it was considered a war without winners. The conflict was described as the one of the bloodiest regional struggles, according to historian Hala Fatah. The Iraq-Iran war was the longest and costliest war ever fought between two countries. Saddam was hoping, of course, for a blitzkrieg. Uh, kind of war. He didn't realize they were that equipped. Yeah. He was trying to emulate the Israelis' winning tactic during the Six-Day War. But Iraq and Iran would go on to be uh, to go on to a war that was the closest thing to trench warfare. And from what we will see, it will go to up to eight years from several months. That's crazy. It's a century. war that no one really talks about or studies about too, huh? It's the longest war, by the way, in history. In the 20th century. Eight years. Eight yeah, years. Longer than both world wars. Mm -hmm. Longer than Vietnam. Yeah. Longer than the Afghan-Soviet war. And the Iraq war was 21st century. Yeah. Okay, yeah, makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Iraqi Air Force launched surprised airstrikes on 10 Iranian airfields with the objective of destroying Iranian Air Force, mimicking something that Israel did in the Six-Day War. The attack failed to damage Iranian Air Force significantly. It damaged infrastructure, but it failed to damage planes. The Iraq Air Force was only able to strike in depth of a few miles. I don't want to get technical with the type of planes they were using. I mean... Um, you could watch documentaries on see how they look like. But uh, for the most part, since it failed, it resulted in Saddam sending a 100,000 man strong ground offensive, which was able to break into Iran and capture the city of, and I'm sorry for the name. It's been a while. Khoram okay. Shahar. Shahar. Yeah, Khoram Shahar. Let's say that. But see, but the thing is, Iran studied how Israel fucked up during the Yom Kippur War. And the Israel-Egypt war was like the playbook. <laughs> yeah. They both read from the same book. Just different eras. Yeah, different chapters, yeah. So, no, I'm serious. So, Iran studied how Israelis messed up the Yom Kippur war. And they applied that tactic to stop Saddam Hussein. The, they, like, 
the opposite tactic yeah. of what the Israelis did. Exactly. Meanwhile, Saddam's like, I'll do, I'll do the six-day war tactic. Which, which worked. So Iran did what didn't work with Israel, and uh, Saddam did what worked, worked with, with Israel. Israel. What about the Egyptians and all this? I think they said how the Egyptians were able to fend off okay. or like push the Israelis back of Sina. Uh, meanwhile, so in all this, it seemed like look, Iran had the like the better military, but the problem, like we said, when they fire well, Egypt had good military, but when you fire your colonels and generals, true. Uh, meanwhile, the, the Iraqi planes, yeah. yeah Iraqi air attacks in Iran were repulsed by the Iran F-14 Tomcat inspector fighter Sorry, jets. We stopped with their takeover Khuram. Yeah, yeah, and then um, okay, yeah. and then yeah, and then Iran had discovered also, yeah, okay, so yeah, so Iran had also discovered that if they fly. Two F F four Phantom planes at a low height under the radar. It could hit targets almost anywhere in Iraq. It's like a maverick move. It's a maverick. Uh, meanwhile, Iraqi air attacks on uh, Iran were repulsed by the Iran's F fourteen Tomcat and <laughs> interceptor fighter jets using Phoenix missiles, which downed a dozen of Iraqi Soviet-built fighters in the first two days of battle. So it was like air force battles. In response, Iraq launched an aerial strikes against Iranian targets. By the end of the year, the war had reached a stalemate, and at that point, no one wanted to back down. Uh, so at that point, Iran would re-weaponize the Kurds uh, to open a new front in the Iraq-Iran war, up north. Smart move. Side note, on June 7, 1981, a flight of Israeli Air Force F-16A fighter aircraft with an escort of five F-15A uh, planes bombed the Osirak reactor in Iraq. Uh, they thought it was a nuclear reactor plant. Uh, Israel called an operation an act of self-defense, saying that the reactor had less than a month to go before it might be it might become critical, thinking that Iraq would build a nuclear bomb. The airstrike reportedly killed 10 Iraqi soldiers and one French civilian. In 1976, Iraq purchased this nuclear reactor from France, and Iraq and France maintained that the reactor was named uh, the reactor that was named Osiriak. Uh, was intended for peaceful scientific research. It was not a nuclear reactor for bombs. Israel viewed this reactor as a, with suspicion and took it upon itself to blow up a wow. reactor in a sovereign country. Because keep in mind, Israel. Israel has a nuclear bomb. It wants to be the only country yeah. in the Middle East with a nuclear bomb. bomb exactly, yeah. uh, this, of course, escalated, but that's a side note. By 1982, Jimmy Carter was out, and we have Ronald Wilson Reagan as president. Reagan would remove uh, Iraq from the state-sponsored terrorism list, uh, while Moscow, on the other hand, was giving Iraq weapons to fight. So both countries tried to win favor with Iraq uh, to fight off the Iranians, who still held Iraq in a stalemate. And this is when we need to talk about the gas. Uh, defying the 1925 Geneva Protocol that outlawed chemical weapons, Iraq converted a chemical plant employed in pesticide with the help of Italians and the French, and they manufactured mustard gas. In moments of panic and pressure, the Iraqi high command routinely deployed torturous poison gases on Iranian infantry. Mustard gas, for one, acts very slowly, and of course, over the course of hours, it eats blisters through, through the skin, right? And then it penetrates the respiratory system and lungs. Contemporary journalists chronicling the war described the abject horror um, the ground was covered in carpets of bodies. It was a hell on earth. As early as summer of 1983, Iran had reported Iraq's use of illegal weapons, but their calls to, for UN investigation sorry, found little support. Because the UN is always a joke. The US early on was aware as well of the gas attacks. In one internal memo uh, to the Secretary of State, George Schultz, read that Iraq had employed poisonous gas 
quote, on an almost daily basis. Uh, the same memorandum noted that we know that Iraq had acquired a chemical weapon production capability, presumably, presumably from Western firms, including possibly a U.S. foreign subsidiary. Uh, the State Department argued it was a United States obligation as a part of the Geneva Protocol to at least publicly condemn Iraq's transgressions, right? However, the national security directive that followed issued in November by Ronald Reagan neglected to mention any chemical weapons used by Iraq. Prevailing priority became clear. Iraq was to win the war and to defeat the anti-American revolutionary religious zealots that Ayatollah Khomeini embodied. To the Reagan administration, an Iranian victory would further the Ayatollah's aim of exporting Islamic revolution throughout the Middle East and thus destabilize the local monarchies, a threat to the Gulf oil that the U.S. depended on. It wasn't until too late that the United States finally condemned Iraq's human rights violations and use of chemical weapons. This lack of pressure was demonstrated by the Rumsfeld envoy, which was sent to improve U.S.-Iraq relations the following December. Donald Rumsfeld, who would later condemn Saddam Hussein for the use of chemical weapons and would blame that he's using weapons of mass destruction, flown to Baghdad to deliver a message to the, uh, from President Reagan to Saddam Hussein. And he made no mention of the poison gas on the battlefield and did not acknowledge the death squads and torture employed by Saddam Hussein's regime for interrogation methods. Instead, there was a photo taken of Rumsfeld smiling while shaking hands with Saddam Hussein and reassured him that America shared Iraq's understanding of the balance in the world and the region. So in that moment where he could have said something, he, he didn't. said nothing. According to a former senior U.S. defense intelligence officer, the use of gas on the battlefield by the Iraqis was not a deep strategic concern at the time because the United States was desperate to ensure that Iraq did not lose. It took at least six months after the U.S. became aware of US, uh, Iraq's use of chemical weapons for it to publicly denounce Saddam Hussein's actions. The State Department was forced to intervene when an American company was found shipping 22,000 pounds of phosphorus fluoride, a component used to make chemical weapons. Wow, so they like caught red-handed and they had they to had do to acknowledge something. it. Are you ready for it? Uh, adding to the complexity, a second group of U.S. officials led by someone named Robert C. Flaren, uh, Reagan's national security advisor, held on the possibility of the future diplomacy with Iran. This group aimed to restore relations that they had uh, had with Iran's previous le uh, leader, the U.S. allied Mohammad Reza Shah. According to McFlaren, the objective was in intervening in the, in the Iraq war. And the Iran-Iraq war was to prevent either side from with winning. A sentiment was echoed by Henry Kissinger, who infamously said, it's a pity both sides can't lose. Huh. This coalition considered Iran to be the lesser evil in the conflict between two unstable anti-American nations. And McFerrin viewed Iran as a, as a strategic prize of the area. So what you have in short is two sides of the American government siding with one Iraq and deciding with Iran, both seeing the other as the lesser of two evils. But both wanting them both to lose. Exactly. Um, however, complications arose as the U.S. pursued conflicting policies under the Reagan administration. In 1984, the U.S. fully restored diplomatic relations with Iraq after Rumsfeld's positive meeting with Saddam Hussein. Shockingly, it was later discovered that in 1985, the U.S. had supplied Iran with millions of dollars of worth of arms. In secret using Israel, Flaren had flown to Tehran to meet with Iranian officials with the objective of securing the release of American hostages in what later would become the Iran-Contra scandal. As profits from the Iranian arms sale was diverted to the Contras in that Nicaragua, yeah, in the rebel group in Nicaragua that were set up to take off the Sandistas or the socialist leaders of Nicaragua. 
we'll keep the conscious for another episode. Uh, maybe you could do an episode on Ronald Reagan and speak about it. But the Contras is going to be a big. They, so they sold weapons to Iran. Despite having an embargo on Iran, they sold it through Israel. The money that was made was being sent to Nicaraguan death squads to kill socialists okay. government there. So they paid off. They paid it off through another method. Yeah. yeah. Not cash. Not cash. Uh, uh, historian Avi Sh- uh, Shalayim has described that the Reagan administration's contradictory policies during the Iran-Iraq war was secretive, erratic, and unconstitutional. Quote, a sorry tale of floundering and blundering, of dishonesty and deception. Uh, unconcerned with the roots of the conflict and Iraq atrocities, the U.S. worked in short-term self-interest. A fear of Khomeini's Islamic fundamentalism and the U.S. desire to, for continued access of the Gulf oil ultimately informed the constantly shifting policies. Let me give you a list of other countries that were involved <laughs> in this war too. Various countries were involved in the Iran-Iraq war, with some supplying weapons and others providing economic and trade support. Germ- West Germany sold chemical weapons to Iraq, and they sold protective gear to Iran to protect them from the chemical weapons. Oh, it's like uh, literally the weapons industry. Yeah. Uh, Britain was, excu- uh, was accused of exporting mustard gas and nerf gas uh, precursors to Iraq, despite the embargo. Companies from the United States, including HP. The printer company? Yeah. Wow. Tektronix and Matrix Churchill, the branch in Ohio, also shipped militarily useful technology to Iraq under the watch of the United States government. North Korea acted as a major arms supplier to Iran. China was selling weapons to both countries. Uh, Yugoslavia sold weapons to both sides. Portugal helped both countries. Spain sold the significant weapons to Iran and Iraq. And some unexploded chemical Iraqi warheads in Iran were found to be manufactured in Spain. Turkey remained neutral and enjoyed economic trade with both sides, with Turkish exports of both countries offsetting its economic crisis. Turkey benefited economically from the war. Uh, Many countries, including the United States, West Germany, Netherlands, UK, France, Italy, Australia, were implicated in providing assistance in developing chemical weapons to Iraq. It's almost like uh, these weapons company, like how can we profit? It was purely profit. It was really. Like it's just businesses booming for the weapons industry and they're like, let's go. And of course, uh, the Soviet Union was funding weapons to Iraq. Iraq? Yeah. Interesting. It saw Iran as a conflict of... uh, Ideologies? Yeah. In October 1986, Iraqi aircraft attacked civilian passenger trains and aircraft on Iranian soil, including Iran Air Boeing 737, which were unloading passengers in the airport when it got bombed, in retaliation to the Iranian Karbala 5 operation. Iraq attacked 65 cities, bombing civilian neighborhoods. Eight Iranian cities came under attack from Iraqi missiles. The War of Cities resumed and peaked in 1988. This is when they start bombing cities. They stopped the trench warfare and they're like, you know what, let's go bomb cities. When Iraq dropped 40 tons of high explosives on Tehran. 40 tons sounds a lot, right? Keep in mind, uh, Vietnam, about 20,000 tons were dropped on Hanoi. And 40 tons of people were considering it like a problematic thing. The 40 tons of high explosive uh, caused panic among civilians and promoted almost 1 million residents of Tehran to temporarily flee their home. However, despite this relatively small scale, the War of Cities still had a devastating impact on civilian populations. In total, 10,000 to 11,000 civilians died as a result of the aerial bombardment of Iranian cities, with the majority of deaths occurring in the final years of war. The bombings also caused significant damage to infrastructure, and left many Iranians struggling to rebuild their homes and communities. In 1988, the last year of the war, during the waning days of the, the Iraq-Iran war, uh, the United States learned through satellite imagery that Iran was about to gain a major strategic advantage by exploiting a hole in Iraqi defenses. 
So the U.S. intelligence officials conveyed the location, fully aware that Hussein's military would attack them with chemical weapons, including sarin gas. So they knew all about it. They knew it and they told the Iraqis, by the way, Iranians are going to go through this. The information provided by intelligence sources contained visual data and geographical information related to the movements of Iranian troops, as well as the whereabouts of Iranians' logistical facilities and and specifics regarding Iranians' air defenses. In early 1988, prior to four major offensives, the Iraq used mustard gas and sarin gas, relying on United States intelligence such as satellite images and maps on where to attack, when to use these gases. The attacks had an effect of turning the tide of the war in favor of Iraq, and this forced Iran to come to the negotiating table, ultimately securing Ronald Reagan's administration goal of an Iraqi victory. These chemical strikes were not the first, they were the final acts in a series of such attacks that had been occurring over several years. Uh, the U.S. officials, of course, long denied acquiescing to Iraq's chemical attacks, insisting that they did not know Saddam Hussein was going to use these weapons. But retired Air Force Colonel Rick Francona, who was a military attache in Baghdad during 1988 strikes, paints a different picture. He says, and I quote, The Iraqs never told us that they intended to use nerve gas. They didn't have to. We already knew. Wow. Let's talk about something that's um, the darkest side of this war. Uh, during the beginning of the Iraq-Iran war, like we said, widespread turmoil in, in Kurdistan, uh, when they kind of got support of Iran and they started creating a new front for their attacks, right? They kind of swayed the war. So Saddam Hussein kind of resulted in trying to eliminate the Kurdish by the use of chemical weapons, right? To display his retribution towards those who he held accountable for the setback in Kurdistan, Saddam initiated the target on the city called Halabja, accused of colluding with the enemy and to help them ca- and help them capturing a small plateau of the city. He instructed his cousin, Ali Hassan al-Majd, known as Chemical Ali, the governor of the Kurdish provinces, to escalate the, so what he called the Anfal campaign and to destroy the city using chemical weapons and artillery shelling. Saddam aimed to kill two birds with one stone by eliminating as many as Kurdish rebels and Iranian soldiers as possible. With little regard for the rest of the population, audio recordings provide evidence that Saddam said, kill them all. The Halabja massacre became the basis of, of his death sentence later on, giving the order during his 19, during his 2004 trial. He justified this by saying it was a defensive measure against the Iranian aggression. Ali Hassan earned the nickname Kemkali Ali due to his participation. On March 16, 1988, at dawn, 10 MIG-23s flew over the city at a low altitude and released containers of napalm that ignited parts of the city, creating enormous walls of fire around it. Shortly after, several planes arrived dispersing a lethal mix of chemical agents including mustard gas and nerve gas agents such as sarin gas. The artillery then continued the assault on the city for several hours, completing the carnage. In late afternoon, Iranian journalists who were in the vicinity covering the capture of the city entered the city and found the outdoor slaughterhouse. Photos of bodies of women, children quickly disseminated worldwide, adding to the Iraqi regime's isolation. These images persuaded the, natural communi- communi- the international community to bring hostilities to a halt. Although Iranian emergency services recorded over 3,000 fatalities, it was difficult to determine the exact number of civilians who perished. Many would succumb to the injuries later on. This was considered one of the deadliest um, moments in war. Uh, another messed up thing. Iranian Air Flight 665 was a scheduled passenger flight from Tehran to Dubai. It was shot down on July 3, 1988 by the United States Navy guided missile missile cruiser, the USS Vincennes, Vincennes, I don't know. Killing, it ended up killing 290 passengers and crew on board. 
The flight was, uh, was operating in Iranian airspace and was the normal flight path, nothing out of the ordinary, when it was targeted and hit by two surface-to-air missiles fired by the United States. The United States government claimed that the plane was mistaken for, for an Iranian fighter jet and that the decision to shoot it down was made in self-defense. However, the Iranian government disputed this account, considered it a war crime. Iran called an investigation and demanded an apology and compensation. George Bush Sr. would later say that the United States doesn't apologize to any, for any of its action, despite of the facts. Uh, General Will Rogers III would later be awarded a medal for his service during the Iran-Iraq war. He captained the chip. Following the acceptance of the United Nations Security Council resolution on July 18, 1988, which called for a ceasefire between Iran and Iraq, the MKO, Mujahideen al-Khalq organization, the largest Iranian armed opposition group, launched an incursion called Eternal Right in Iran on July 25th. The Iranian government repelled the offense, but it was believed to have provided the pretext for the authorities to eliminate political opponents in the prison, including MKO members sentenced, to year, sentenced years earlier. The executions were reportedly carried out in two phases, initially targeting members and then sub- subsequently targeting non-religious and leftist parties. It was considered a massacre. Between the summer of 1981 to summer of 1988, the Iranian authorities executed hundreds of political prisoners. After- Following the end of the eight-year war between Iraq and Iran, the Iranian government reportedly transferred and isolated political prisoners in Tehran, and in late July, 1988, authorities interrogated prisoners about their political beliefs and characterized them based on their perceived loyalty to Iran's rulers. The prisoners were blindfolded and taken before a committee and asked them to denounce the MKO and its leadership, express repentance about their political opinions and activities, declare loyalty to the Islamic Republic. The exact dates of the mass executions are unknown, but it likely occurred in the prisons between 26th to July 30th. With the timeline of execution in prisoners outside the capital varying, survivors have described being blindfolded, waiting in hallways to be taken before a committee and seeing prisoners being taken for the execution, including those who were dying of bad health. Iran decided to go on a mass execution during the war just to get rid of any Iraqi sympathizers or anyone who could be a threat to the regime. Uh, it's considered by amnesty to be a crime against humanity, and um, no one's been brought up to it. Seems like a lot of people got away with it. Yeah. With everything, whether it's America, Iran, or Iraq. Iraq. So like we said, the Iraq-Iran war was considered the deadliest war ever fought, uh, with Iran suffering a greater loss. Iraqi casualties are estimated to be 200,000, 400,000 wounded, 70,000 taken prisoners. Both countries suffered significant damages to their cities. Thousands of civilians from both sides died in air raids, ballistic attacks, gas attacks. Iranian governments estimated that the war cost Iran about 200 to 200,000 to 262,000 people killed, including combatants, uh, people missing in action, civilians. Uh, in addition, 303, around 400,000 Iranians sustained injuries that required prolonged medical and health care. Uh, both Iraq and Iran manipulated the lost figures, of course, to suit their purposes, each one saying that they got destroyed more. But yeah, but it was the result. But yeah, with the ceasefire went into effect, Saddam Hussein declared victory and announced the construction of a triumphal arc in Baghdad called the Swords of Qadisiyah, uh, which represented the defeat of Iran. However, he was aware that the war had left Iraq's finances in dire state and faced difficult decisions regarding the demobilization of soldiers. Keeping the army would require finding new source of revenues to support it. As, uh, as oil revenues had declined by 50%, direct peace negotiations be- began in Geneva on August 24, 1988. But the Iraq army uh, turned against the Kurdish militia at the end of the hostilities with Iran. So it, it moved from one war to another. Yeah, it was nonstop. Yeah. And this so caused, all that good efforts he did with Iraq prior went away with that war. Exactly. It, it caused the displacement of Kurds 
into into Turkey, Syria, and Iran, uh, which sparked international outrage. In the later part of 1988, under the Ba'athist rule, Iraq became the dominant military power, right? Baghdad boasted that it had a vast military apparatus with with four times as many tanks, armored vehicles, and cannons, and six times as many combats as in Tehran. Following the deadly summer offenses, the Iraq army comprised of 50 divisions. It outnumbered the Iranian army. Additionally, the Iraq army was three times stronger than all the armies of the GCC combined. Saddam Hussein, feeling invincible, believed that he had attained regional supremacy, uh, even though the war was kind of a stalemate. Yeah. In response, the oil monarchies concluded that they needed to purchase more weapons and allow for more naval bases. It was the beginning of the Western military forces in the GCC uh, to protect themselves against Iran's desire or Iraq's ambition. The war acted as a catalyst for Saddam Hussein, fueling his interest in military affairs, so he fired all his generals and he became the commander-in-chief. Saddam was convinced that it was, it was his fear determination that won the victory over Iran, and he has, the, he has no right to compromise. He also believed that the United States was so inc- inconstant, uh, demonstrating weak character and fickleness, and that the Gulf monarchies would never da- dare to challenge his leadership. Okay, and now, so that's the Iran-Iraq war. So Saddam faced challenges in financing and growing his military, right? The economy was in shit. You have an eight-year war that went nowhere. Promoted him to compete with his fellow Arabic na- Arab nations to raise the oil prices and to cre- to increase the OPEC production quotas so he could fund his so he could fund his army. This kind of put him in direct contention with another country in the GCC. Kuwait. Yeah, where he where he openly threatened uh, Amir Jabir of Kuwait, who refused to forgive Iraq of the debt. Uh, of its financial debt and who refused to increase oil prices or to increase production quotas. King Fahd of Saudi Arabia had forgiven Iraq of its debt. This kind of resulted in a hostility between Kuwait and Iraq and on August 20th, less than two years later, Iraq withdrew uh, from its last occupied territory in Iran, effectively ending the war. And 18 days later, Saddam would enter Kuwait, which would lead to a separate conflict known as the mother of all battles. The Gulf War. The first Gulf War. And that's where we're going to leave off for today. It's kind of a heavy one. I don't think there's a lot. Like yeah, the war is a, a bit of a heavy war. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, but that was the Iran-Iraq war. It was um, destructive. So yeah, any last words before we sign off? No, I think the full summary will come at the end of all these series because there was a lot to take on. But it's just interesting to see how much no one got, uh, no one answered to anyone. No one got punished for the war crimes, whether it was Iran. Well, Saddam did in the end. But, but only like, when it favored America to yeah, punish him. Like the Americans, none of them got punished. None of the Israelis got punished or the Iranians or the Iraqis at the time. Like Saddam still had a good 20 years, like eight, 16 years afterwards of mm-hmm. healthy life. Yeah, yeah. He got away with, you know, so. In the end. Yeah, it's pretty messy. I also want to just uh, bring out how like at the end, the Western countries used Iraq, Iran to just, promote their weapon supplies to fund Contras. Uh, they played both countries. People think humans are nice, but humanity is a cesspool. <laughs> yeah, it's the politicians, bro. Like they, That's all. Even businesses, H- look at all these companies that were involved. That were funding too. chemical weapons. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a, so a cesspool, fun. yeah. Anyways, guys, so this was the so part two of our four parts on Iraq and America's second Gulf War. Next time, we'll be talking about... Um, the first Gulf War, Hulk Hogan versus Sergeant Slaughter in WrestleMania. Classic, yeah. Bush Sr., the New World Order. And yeah, and the sanctions of that came after and what and what would cause the second Gulf War to start up.
Um, thank you all for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Um, I think this one we couldn't really make a lot of jokes about war. Anyways, our sympathies for the lives lost for all the victims of the war who are still suffering from this war. I'll see you guys in two weeks. Have a good night. Take care. Take care, guys. Well, let me take you back uh, about 20 years uh, ago. Uh, the date, I believe, was uh, in De- December 20th, 1983. Uh, you were meeting with uh, Saddam Hussein. I think we have some video of that um, of, of that meeting. Tell me what was going on during this, uh, this Where meeting. Where did you get this video? From so, the Iraqi television? This is from Iraqi television. When did they give it to you? Recently well, no, or back had, then? We've dug this out of the CNN library. I see. Isn't so, that interesting? There I am.